And as you're being seated, if you would please turn with me in your copies of God's word to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to be looking at another one of the parables of Jesus, stories that Jesus uses to teach us a profound truth. We'll be starting in verse 9 this morning and we'll be reading through verse 14. Once again, listen carefully because this is God's word to you, to no one, this morning. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Parables like this one are very familiar. We've heard this story many times before, and in fact, we're used to this particular cast of characters this Pharisee and this tax collector together. And we who have grown up in the church have a very large and significant distrust of Pharisees and something of a soft spot for tax collectors. There are no children's nursery songs about Pharisees, but there are songs about we little tax collectors. And we're grown to have this soft spot for them. And because of that, the shock of this parable is completely lost on us. We who are used to how the story ends, we don't get to see the shock and ultimately the point that Jesus is trying to make of this. We tend to mistake who we are in this parable. We tend to cast ourselves as the humble one that gets it right. And instead, might even find ourselves praying, Lord, thank you that I am not like those smug Pharisees. And miss the point altogether. It's an easy mistake to make. That's why I like how this parable begins. Here in verse 9, it says, who is, he identifies who it is that this parable is being told to. Says Jesus told this parable to the Pharisees? It doesn't say that specifically. It says to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Does that describe the Pharisees? A lot of them? Yes, it does. 
But that window of who this parable is for is a lot bigger than just Pharisees. We can be Pharisees without the garb. We can even be Pharisees about not being Pharisees. Well, at, least I'm not hypo- at least I'm not hypocritical and judgmental like those people. It's easy to do. That's why we're going to be looking at this parable closely. And we're going to look at two points, as you can see in your outline that's been inserted into the bulletin for you. Our two points today are, one, you need more grace than you think. You need more grace from God than you think. And secondly, God is more merciful than you can imagine. It's like the old Presbyterian joke of, don't worry, you're worse than you thought. But God's grace is bigger than you can think. So let's take a look at this first one. You need more grace than you think. Cheer up, you're worse than you, than you believe. Let's dive in. Jesus is addressing an almost universal problem. That is, people who believe that they are righteous and treat others who aren't like them with hatred. And he illustrates this with this story. Now, I'm going to change one of the characters from a Pharisee to what people would have actually looked at the Pharisees like at the time. If this story was to be told today, we would say a beloved pastor and seminary professor is gathering with the rest of the community for their day of prayer. And joining next to him is this tax collector. Here, this is a gathering of the public. They would have gathered twice a day for prayer at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. So all the community is getting together. And this seminary professor, this beloved pastor, this Pharisee, wouldn't miss it. This is his whole life. is committed to a holy expression. So he wouldn't miss this for the world. Now, the other person is an unexpected, almost more likely unwelcome person to this prayer group. Now, if you think you hate the IRS, imagine if you knew who the IRS was and they lived next door to you. Here, these tax collectors were viewed as one of the lowest people in society. And you can imagine why. To put this into a modern context, imagine that your neighbor becomes the IRS agent. You know about what this person makes. And when they first come up to your door to collect your tax check, he tells you what the amount is and takes it and goes away. The first time, he's dressed just like you are. But the next time, he shows up in designer clothes. And he writes you out of taxes, and it's a little bit more than you thought you would be paying, but he's the tax guy, so you keep writing it. Soon you notice his car is getting better. And now he's putting in a pool next door. You know that public salary is not enough to do all of that. You know he's cheating you and is skimming more tax dollars off of you for himself. Now, what's even worse is that this tax collector here in this story is collecting taxes on behalf of a foreign government, an enemy. The tax collector has sold out his people to this enemy godless government and is using this position to enrich himself. He's using other people to build a livelihood for himself by cheating and stealing in the midst of betraying his people. It doesn't get worse than this. Tax collectors weren't even allowed to give testimony in court because they were so distrusted. 
would be like a modern day drug pusher or a pimp. It's just shocking enough just for him to even be here. So that's our two cast of characters. They've gathered together and they're going to pray. And our beloved pastor, our Pharisee, is beginning his own prayer. Says the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thusly. Now, some versions will look at this, will translate this different ways, whether he is standing by himself praying or he's praying uh, within himself or even to himself because he's talking about himself this whole time. Regardless of where it is that he's doing it or how you translate this, this is introducing that he is going to pray and it's not going to be very good. It starts out well. He at least addresses God at the beginning. Says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Goes on to the things that he doesn't do and the things that he does do. And in fact, this guy is living a very holy life. As near as we can tell, there is nothing untrue about what this guy is praying. He's not an extortioner. He's not an adulterer. He's not unjust. And his righteousness is actually far exceeding what was required of him. It says that he fasts twice a week. They were only required to fast one day a year. So as one scholar put it, he is fasting a hundred times more than he needs to. And he says that he tithes of all that he gets. You didn't have to tithe of everything, but it's all the way down to the herbs. If he's got ten flakes of rosemary, he's going to take one of those and bring it to the temple. Very, very scrupulous. And at least it's beginning where it seems that he's at least starting with God. He's at least addressing him and is thanking him for this. So what's wrong? It's not the fact that he's doing good things. Jesus wants us to do good things. But where this prayer is going wrong is why does the Pharisee think he's not like other men? It's true, he's not. But why? You can see this in what he says. Yes, God makes a cameo appearance at the beginning of this prayer. But it's I, 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 I. Five more times in two sentences, this Pharisee manages to make this prayer about himself. And in essence, what he is saying is, I am the one keeping myself holy. I am the one keeping myself pleasing to God. I am the reason why I'm good. And that's the fatal flaw that this Pharisee is making. It's keeping it all about himself. And notice what else is missing from this prayer. He doesn't ask God for anything. One scholar pointed out that he doesn't ask for anything because he doesn't think he needs anything. Just to show up and remind God of what a good little Pharisee he's been this week. He's not asking for grace. And notice also how this pride and self-accomplishment, I'm the one that's gotten my stuff together, how quickly this leads to hatred of other people. Notice he's going on in this list of sinners. I'm not like an extortioner, unjust adulterer, or even like this tax collector over here. The language is very dismissive of this person that's sitting next to him is 
putting himself in a class by himself. One commentator, and one commentator and pastor is Kent Hughes. He said this about the Pharisee. He does not appear to care about the plight of the tax collector. His ostensible claim to be a lover of God is shown to be false by his lack of love for his poor, pitiable, sinning neighbor. In other words, the Pharisee looks at this tax collector, sees that he is in a dangerous spot with God. This is a sinner over here. And the Pharisee doesn't care. Could be, the Pharisee says, I see there's this tax collector here at prayer. This is someone who needs to know who God is. I'm going to talk to him about that. No, 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 no. Just that it's that guy. His only use is to compare to me. To make myself feel good that I'm doing better than he is. And by doing so, he shows that he doesn't actually love God. Because he doesn't love his people. He doesn't love the sinner. By excluding another from grace, another commentator said, he excludes himself. The Pharisee wanted a relationship with God to be built on works because he could feel better about himself. He doesn't realize how much grace he needs. And we could forget that too. I'll admit, I've not been paying attention to public life for a very long time, being an adult. But this is a very divided time in our country. And it's the quickest time to choose sides on everything. And it's very easy to choose our side and then wind it in with our faith with God. And say, it's like, okay, because I'm on this side, I'm good and you are not. And to look down on other people and to say, well, you are not as good as I am because I do this, do that. And we still need grace. We look at other people and say, it's like, well, those people, they they really need grace. Or when when we hear a sermon, we want to like nudge our neighbor and say, you need to hear this. It's like, no, we need to hear this too. We need grace. No matter what side of the country you're on, no matter what end of the debate you're on. We need him. Church people, those of us who are here, we need just as much grace as the guy too drunk to get out of the street this morning. We need Christ. It's not to say that there aren't sins that are worse than others. There are passages that show that. John eleven nine, or Matthew eleven twenty through 24 and Ezekiel 8, 6, 13, and 15. All those passages show us, yes, there are sins that are worse than others, but every sin needs the grace of God. Even getting frustrated with your stupid printer, that's not going to print right. Being frustrated at something is saying, God, your plan is not good. I don't like it. You need Jesus to die for you for your frustration at your printer. I need the grace of Jesus for that. We all do. All sins are disqualifying from heaven and need Jesus to pay them off. Anything that is less than that grasp of truth is a Pharisee heart. And any heart that says... I don't need grace, 
very quickly looks to other people and looks down on them and the cycle begins. So that's the case. We need grace. This is uncomfortable to admit. We don't like finding out that we're sinners. We don't like finding out that we're dependent, especially as Americans grown up in the rugged, individualistic idea that we can do it. It's hard to admit that we need grace, a lot of grace. But it gets easier for us to admit that. We can be bold to admit that when we find out how merciful God is. We don't have to be afraid of finding out the depths of our evil. We don't have to be afraid about being really honest with God and with ourselves that we are worse than we think. Because God's grace is bigger than we can imagine. And we find that out by looking at this second character as we move into our second point of God is more merciful than you can imagine. Note, the tax collector has got a completely different standpoint on everything. Here he is standing far away. His prayer is really short, and he's not comparing himself to anybody. One commentator points out that this passage spends five words describing the Pharisee's stance and 29 on his prayer. With the tax collector, 19 words are spent on his stance and six are on his prayer. What does this stance mean? What is he doing? Well, first, he's standing way far away from the rest of the crowd because he doesn't feel worthy to approach the altar at the afternoon prayer. And unlike the usual position of prayer, which would have been your hands up like this and your eyes lifted up towards heaven, he doesn't feel worthy to do even that. He's not even going to lift his eyes up to heaven, but instead he's beating his chest This was a cultural expression of grief that you would save for funerals. This is the loss of someone forever kind of grief, of him grieving over his sin. And then as he opens his mouth to pray, he says, God, be merciful to me. The ESV translates it a sinner, and most, trans, most translations do. Uh, but there is, when we, we look at the language that's underneath it, he uses a definite article there, which is to say, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He doesn't compare himself to anybody else. Instead, he puts himself in a category all his own of being this massive sinner. He believes he's the biggest sinner in the room. Now, there's a couple things we need to look at with this character, the tax collector. And the one is he's being honest and he's being accurate. The tax collector actually was a really sinful person. And it's easy for us to say, it's just like, okay, well, he was, he was doing good. It's like, no, he wasn't. He was, as one of my across the pond commenters put it, he is a, he is a right and true rotter. It's a rotten guy. We wouldn't want him to be around us because we know his reputation in the community. We don't want to be close to that guy. Someone might think we're friends. And he's coming to God truthfully. He's not hiding anything. He's not trying to make himself look any better than, than he is. He knows he's a sinner. But he's coming to God for mercy. And that brings us to this second thing. What is this tax collector actually asking for? We know he's being honest. 
He grasps his condition well. He knows he's got a fatal case of sin. So what does he ask for? He says, God, be merciful to me. The concept that he is asking for is atonement. Make atonement for me. Now, what does that word atonement mean? It's actually a bringing together of several different words. If you were to split up atonement, it would say at one bringing us back together, reconciling God and this tax collector, because he knows he sinned. He knows he's broken the relationship between himself and God and needs to have that restored. But how? How do you find atonement for someone like that? Someone who has turned his back on his people, betrayed them, taking their money and doing any and everything to enrich himself. How do you come back from something like that? Well, that atonement, as one scholar put it, is going to come from the man who's telling the parable. It's Jesus himself. Now, what do you need for atonement? Well, you need two things. One, you need to have your sins taken away. You need to have your record covered. And that's what Jesus does. When Jesus goes to the cross, he is taking the punishment that was deserved by this tax collector and the Pharisee, by the way. Both of them deserved to be nailed to the cross and be in the crosshairs of God's wrath. As do you and I. But Jesus takes all of that. And that punishment is exacted onto Jesus. And he spills His blood, his life is required. All sin requires the death penalty. And by Jesus dying on the cross, he can take away that sin, can expunge it from our record, wipe the slate clean with his own blood. And because that's taken place, fancy word for that is expiation, by the way. You're allowed one or two fancy words in a sermon, so I'm told. So have expiation that your sins have been taken away. But then you also need, here's your second fancy word, propitiation. That means God's wrath is turned away from you. You no longer need to be in God's crosshairs because he's taken away the sin. There's no need to punish you now because all of that has been put on Christ. You could imagine standing on a beach and there's this wall of water, a tsunami is heading your way. There's no way you can outrun it. There's no way you can avoid it. And then suddenly Jesus steps in front of you and absorbs all of that into himself and protects you from that. That's what he's doing here. That's atonement. That's at one minute with God. Because your sins are taken away and his wrath is turned away. God's not angry anymore with you. Because he did this all willingly. And the same can be done for you. If you're standing or sitting here today, as it turns out, or watching us online, and you think to yourself, well, on the outside, I've got pretty much everyone fooled. In fact, sometimes I fool myself sometimes thinking that I'm a good person. But deep down, if you're really honest with yourself in those quiet moments when you're not distracted by something and your mind is given a chance just to think about things, you realize how rotten things are in the core. 
Or you find out, no, I've, I've ceased pretending a long time ago, and I'm just as rotten on the outside as I am on the inside. Jesus offers help to both people because both people need grace. And Jesus' sins cover the sins of church people just as much as the people that have never seen a church building in their lives. This is not about this. It's not about the works. Because unless you are perfect in thought, word, and deed, and have always been, you need the grace of Jesus. Even if you say, yes, I've come to Jesus, I've walked the aisle, I've signed the card, I've joined the church. It's like, great, still need the grace. You don't outgrow the gospel. Jesus is not training wheels to get you started in life and then we take those things off and off you go. That's not it. You don't need training wheels, you need a wheelchair. Jesus is carrying you everywhere you go and needs grace for every part of it. You can't do it on your own. And if you think you can, that's an additional sin. So repent of that. So how do we access this mercy? As we close here and looking at our final verse in verse 14, how is it that we access this kind of a gift? How is it that we find forgiveness from our sins and a turning away of God's wrath? Right here, verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you this man, the tax collector, the one who asks God for something. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is backwards thinking in our culture. In our culture, if you want to get somewhere, you have to promote yourself. You've got to make yourself look good. Do whatever it takes to make sure other people see you as bigger than you are. And Jesus says, no, it's not how it works with God. You don't impress God. Sorry, you don't. So stop trying. Instead, we humble ourselves. We, we say to God what God is saying about us. We are sinners. We need God's grace in our lives. And when we humble ourselves, truly, not a false humility, God's not impressed by chest thumping either or outward displays of repentance if it's not a change of the heart. We humble ourselves and God will change us. Now, this is not to say, okay, well, I said the words, now I can go live my life. I got my little insurance card and I've got my license. I can go. Mm -mm. This tax collector, well, this is a parable. It's not the same guy as what we see in chapter 19. But we'll see another tax collector here in a few weeks. His name is Zacchaeus. He not only repented, but then he went and lived his life that Jesus wanted him to live. We'll get to that passage when we get to it. But for now, we recognize we don't impress God. That's our takeaway from this passage. God isn't impressed by our works the things that impress ourselves or the things that might make other people go, wow, that's not the thing with God. The thing that God is looking for is for you to see reality and be humbled by it. That I am a sinner. And that the preacher of this church deserves to go to hell. Because I do. Outside of Christ, I would have no hope. Being up here and preaching on a stage, that's not impressive. 
That doesn't earn me salvation any more than you sitting here listening to me earns your salvation. But it's coming to Christ humbly and ask him for grace. It's not saying, well, let me clean up my life first and then I'll approach him. No, that's not how it works. You don't go to the doctor trying to cure yourself before you see the doctor. You go to the doctor because you've got it, because because you're sick. You need help. You can't fix it on your own. So we see here in this passage. It's very fitting that we've come to this passage when we're about to take the Lord's Supper. This sacrament, this part of the church, this means of grace that we have, is a picture of what we've just described here. That we are sinners, but we've been invited to the table. We were former rebels, but the king has invited us to have a meal. And when we're here in a few minutes, we're going to be taking a look at our grape juice and our bread. Common elements, but they represent something bigger. The grape juice represents the blood, the blood that has covered our sins, that blood that was shed on our behalf, the blood that should have been ours, that Jesus shed. And the bread's going to represent the body that has been broken, turning away the wrath of God, absorbing all of the punishment that was meant for us so that we could come and have fellowship together. We don't come to this table with a swagger. Like we own this thing and we're, it's our right. No, this is a privilege to come to this table. This is an honor to be here. It's a grace that God has given to us. And a grace that we could never have earned, never deserve but has been bestowed to us despite us. So I pray if you have not come to faith in Christ yet, or maybe you've been thinking, yeah, I've just kind of been doing this church thing for a lot of years. I thought that I was with Jesus, but I'm realizing my life has just been about making me look good. This is the time to repent. This is the time to say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I need help here. I've got to humble myself before a God who is perfectly holy. It's not about helping God. It's about coming to him. There is a, I'll close with this. It was a story I heard from John Piper. He used to jog in a town in Minneapolis and there was a machine shop that had a permanent wooden sign that said help wanted in the front. A lot of turnover at this particular thing. But every once in a while, they would have another sign they would put on top of it that was a big no and a line through the help wanted. Say, no help wanted. And John Piper looked at that and he recognized that's a lot how God works with us. When it comes to our salvation, God has no help wanted. Doesn't need that from us. We don't lift ourselves up by standing on the platform and trying to pull ourselves up that way. It doesn't work. It's coming to him grateful for his grace and grateful for his love. And that's what I hope that you have found here today. If you need help or questions with that, please see me. Nothing would thrill me more than to walk you through that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this grace, this marvelous grace that's greater than all of our sin as we sung earlier. And I ask that as we come to this table, But we don't come here with a swagger. 
But we come here with humility. We come here as forgiven people that have been invited to your table. So I ask that we would see this today, that this would remind us of the gospel and help us to live faithfully to you. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.